1: Hello, and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. Today, my guests are from very diverse, but um, highly complementary sectors. Uh, Rag Patel joined Spotify almost three years ago and has been in his current role as regional head of sales for the UK and Pan Amir since April. As you almost certainly know, Spotify transformed music listening when it launched in Sweden in 2008 and is now the most popular global audio subscription streaming service, boasting 286 million users, including 130 million subscribers across 79 markets. Ian McCulloch, is Managing Director for Silent Pool Distillers. Their eponymous gin first launched in 2015 and within three months was winning international awards. Based in the Surrey Hills, in fact, just across the border with Kent for me, uh, Ian and his team have gone on to expand their offering with a range of other spirits and small batch gins. And even, of course, in these COVID times, Silent Pool hand sanitizer. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, um, Ian. The craft gin explosion was really one of the most extraordinary phenomena. Uh, it was a kind of black swan event in some respects, and certainly in the uh, alcoholic drinks industry. And it's become phenomenally popular, probably since around 2013 thereabouts. It's now doing a roaring trade in the UK. But how did you go about making sure? Silent Pool stood out in what was an incredibly noisy market by the time you launched in 2015?
2: When we launched, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, we saw Sipsmiths get away and we thought that was it. It uh, sort was of game over. Um, one of the things I knew we needed to do was to have a distinctive bottle design. Uh, we didn't want to have a clear bottle with a white label saying um, Surrey Hills Finest Gin. And by a set of happy accidents, I ended up meeting the guys from Seymour Powell and they took us on and they did the bottle design. That was sort of stage one. So we had a very powerful, iconic looking bottle that was very different. We then, most distillery businesses are started by guys who want to distill stuff and actually making it's not the issue. Selling it is the issue. You've got to turn gin into money. Um, We went above the line very, very quickly primarily because my sort of background was marketing and advertising. We started spending locally on local media. We parlayed that with PR and sort of advertorial, and we built it out from there. That's how we made a noise. So that was our sort of differentiator. It was about 18 months to two years later that the market really exploded with a whole load of almost hobby-level gin distillers. Um, It's now sort of past that peak. But that's how we did it in the early days, is by sort of advertising and PR.
1: That's a strange thing, because obviously, I mean, locale is not as important in gin as it is in, say, wine. Uh, The whole area of of terroir, for example. And yet, in a weird kind of way, people like to know where a gin is made, don't they? It's a a strange thing. So you make no secret of, you know, uh, of your location, quite the opposite.
2: Yeah, I mean, we when we, I was pulling the, the thing together, we were in the middle of that food scare where you'd open up the Daily Mail and there'd be a double-page spread saying it was slaughtered in England, then it went to Romania to be made into a pie, now it's in a deep freeze in Germany and it's full of horse meat. Um, and there was that the sort of widespread, do you really know what you're putting in your mouth? Um, you know, things aren't quite as described. We make a virtue of the fact that we're completely open and transparent. So if you turn up to the distillery, everything we do is on site. We don't tank us liquid off to be bottled. Lots of the big guys do. We take in raw materials and we send out bottled gin. Um, We say to people on the tours, if you walk around the site, and you can walk around it in about three minutes. um, There's nothing spooky around the back. There's no weird chemical plants. Everything you see is completely transparent and open. And slightly chaotic. So you turn up to a working distillery, not a sort of Disney-esque version of a distillery. It's you know there are pipes, hoses, steam, liquid, smells, all sorts of things, ingredients. Everything's there for you to see. So it's completely
1: transparent. Interestingly, why do you think? I mean, by the way, I, I, I'm going to say one thing: the uh, money you spent with Seymour Powell, I mean. Always a huge fan of Seymour Powell. But I mean, uh, that was extraordinarily well spent, even though I don't know how much you spent. And you've created uh, packaging, which is as close to art as I've seen in that category in sort of 10 years. How long did that take?
2: We did do a very good deal with Seymour Powell and they wanted to take a new brand on. We don't pay commercial rates by any means, but the quid pro quo is we support them in their PR. Uh, as when required um they have a sort of incubator program that we were managed to be part of they came down for immersion days um we did lots of sitting down with the designers we thought of all sorts of weird names and in the end somebody said well, hold on you're at the silent pool why don't we call it that it's a it's a sort of moody name you know that silent and pool still waters run deep um, and that's where we, we started. The original concept for the design, they showed us lots of designs and it was one of those situations where you go through 10 versions and you see one pop up and you go, right, that's it, that's the one. And there was no doubt when we saw the original version. And the original version was a teal bottle with a fretwork cut copper cover. So a sort of filigree surround. You see old um, perfume bottles where they've got silver fretwork or um, filigree and a blue bottle inside. That was a sort of look we were after. And we spent ages trying to laser cut and bend sheets of copper, and it didn't work. Um, So we ended up printing it, and that's what we've got. But that was the original concept. The copper reflects the copper uh, from the still that we make it in, and the story of the gin. The ingredients are on the bottle. The myth is on the bottle. Um, the, The blue, the teal is there because the water that comes from the silent pool comes up through a phosphate layer at about 200 metres down and is teal coloured in certain lights and angles. The pool goes sort of bluey green. So you've got the entire story of the gin captured in a bottle. And it was a no-brainer when we saw the original piece of work that that was the the route.
1: I have to say, um, coming from the marketing services uh, um, angle, from the agency angle, uh, be kind to your design firms because one of the things working in Ogilvy, where, of course, we have Curly Porter Bell, One of the things that always slightly horrifies me about clients is that the whole business of packaging design, which, of course, is the inception point where a product becomes a brand, you know, that's the first moment where you leap from being a commodity to a brand, and which has extraordinarily decisive effects on sales. And yet I always notice that the packaging design world is treated, I think, rather unfairly by clients in the sense that because advertising is enormously expensive, no one really minds a little bit of margin being added on to the kind of media cost. Whereas I notice in packaging design, even though these people can make you millions, people are kind of arguing about the cost of a taxi or something. I I always feel for the people in design that uh, rather as I feel for architects and people like that, that they're often sli- slightly sort of stingily treated by by the by, by the world of, of brand owners. Uh, do you think I'm being fair there? <laughs> um, I no, when we, yeah, I
2: mean, we did the deal we did. when you when you start a business and, and you're writing the cheque, out I can tell you, you watch every single pound. I know. So I'm mean with everything, um, but we have huge respect for them. What we don't do is double guess them. They do what they do and they do it incredibly well. Yeah. The arrangement we had with Seymour's was they work with lots of big companies and they, they oftentimes will end up talking to a brand manager and they ask the brand manager, do you like this? Is this approved? And he's thinking, what will my boss say? Because If I say I like it and he doesn't like it, I look like an idiot. If I don't like it and he does like it, I look like an idiot. And stuff goes round and round in circles. What they wanted from us and part of our agreement was very short – lines of communication and direct feedback. So we have had, we, we do sit in meetings and say, right, it's that one. Can we have it a bit bluer? Uh, it's, it's 12 o'clock now. Can we have it by four o'clock? Lovely. So we, we get on with it. We give them direct feedback, but we appreciate what they do. They, they do what they do incredibly well. Um, and we don't abuse that by messing them around.
1: I think, by the way, that, is fa- that, that sounds very much like the Burnback arrangement with Avis, um, uh, which is the, the, the great trade-off you can offer any agency instead of money is exactly that kind of directness. Uh, I, think, I think that's a really wonderful thing because we, I think that's an extraordinary thing when you think about it that most agency people fail to understand is that they think that when they're presenting, their client is thinking, will this work? And that's probably the third consideration that a list headed by "How can I sell this to my boss and will I look like an yeah. idiot um yeah. and i think I think that business of of actually shortening the approval lines is the biggest thing you can possibly do rack I mean I think the case of we you know why Spotify I was going to ask, and I will ask in a second, you know why gin? why do we think it was gin, not say sherry that enjoyed this extraordinary efflorescence. I think in the case of music streaming, um, you had a very interesting case, which was that, in a sense, the demand and need for the product was absolutely obvious. But it was the music industry rather than the consumer dragging its heels. Is that fair?
3: Well, um, I've got to start with the the image that's in my mind with Ian saying disney-esque uh, distilleries so that i've just had that image in my mind for a few a few minutes actually but um now rory rory to to your question i think when when daniel set out in uh, in 2008 as you you pointed out you know for for him it was around the democratization of of music really was and 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 giving something back to you know clearly fans or users we, we call them fans uh, at spotify and and you know really wanting to work with labels along the way as well and I think you know obviously the the relationships have, have really developed over the space of the last 14 years 13-14 years or so and you know we're, we're at a stage now where you know the symbiosis between all the creators that we have with labels and so on has become really critical to clearly that industry uh, and and now you know we're, we're obviously venturing into podcasts and, and in that space too.
1: Yes I, I, I'm, I'll ask a little bit about that I mean the um, uh, the, the very significant investment in Podcasting, and I think you've bought, in fact, one or two podcasting networks. Uh, what's driven that?
3: Yeah, a, a, a few things, I would say. um Again, referring back to, um, to to Daniel, something something that he you know has really sort of believed in, and again has, has spoken about quite consistently is the the twenty year sort of trend of linear to on demand. So you know, we've obviously seen that with uh, with music. We've seen that with video and you know for us as an organization um really owning the ear has become you know our sort of primary um mission um you know and our mission over the space of the next two five ten 10 odd years or so and so you know in order to do that obviously obviously we've started in the music space and done all the things that you know you've sort of described in that space um and so you know podcasts was just a very natural next space for us to to really sort of do what we've done in the music space if that makes sense again thinking about you know podcasts and podcast listening branching that out to a very large scaled audience and and then as well within that doing what we've done to music from a spotify perspective and what i mean by that is discovery what i mean by that is you know really giving a real sort of breadth of uh podcast experiences on our platform to all, to all fans out there so you know yeah you, you've touched on you know investments that we've made um it's it's massively exciting space for us and and a hugely important bet you know for us as an organization going forward too
1: and i, I imagine actually it's proved fairly timely in lockdown certainly if the number of podcasts i've been asked to record as anything <laughs> go by the space yeah. is certainly healthy yeah and it, i suppose in a sense it's it's rather like music, it's the kind of long tail, isn't it, of spoken audio, in that there's a lot of it, but when you aggregate the listeners, the numbers are fairly huge.
3: Absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's it's important to sort of stress what's happened over the space of the last few months with lockdown as well. I think, you know, we we think a lot about at spotify uh the future of audio um and and future gazing maybe not quite as much as you rory but you know we we do think we do pride ourselves on uh, on you know thinking about where where audio is is going and, and how we can lead that and and what's happened over the space of the last few months is you know as opposed to new innovations we're bringing out it's really accelerated a lot of our thinking and a lot of our product sets and and so on that we've already had out in the marketplace and so if we take podcasts for example you referred to some of the acquisitions we acquired an organization over eighteen months ago or so called anchor, um, which i'm sure i'm sure you're aware of and and what anchor allows is any consumer, any individual to create a podcast and upload it and put it onto Spotify and other platforms as well so again, democratizing you know the ability to get a podcast and a podcast going and what we actually saw during lockdown just the move between going from March to April, we saw uh, an increase of close to 60% month on month increase of the number of podcasts that were being uploaded onto the platform onto Spotify through Anchor. So, you know, you could really sort of see a on one side that that huge increase. And that that's continued, you know, over that period. And then the other part of you know that's attached to that is, you know, the breadth of content as well. So you know in the early part of lockdown, you know, there was huge increase in news, in coronavirus related podcasts and, and, and as you'd expect. And and you know, a similar trend obviously we saw with the news sites and news T V channels and so on and so forth. Um and then what happened is as um consumers and well all of us you know got a bit more familiar now whether we like it or not being at home that's you know uh, <laughs> everyone's personal sort of judgment but in terms of you know the familiarity what well, what we then started to see was you know podcasts around workout podcasts around cooking podcasts around you know all of the sort of the moments that had become more and more important in the home you know as as we went through lockdown and that that is very reflective of how our platform is used you know we we very much we, we talk and Rory you know this we talk a lot about music and podcasts being a mirror to you know, an individual, to, you know, we mirror what's going on in culture. And so we, we really started to see, you know, um, huge spikes, actually, you know, and, and some really fascinating podcasts and music behaviours as well. For example, uh, playlists around being at home increased by a thousand percent you know so that was just
1: as you'd expect but yeah we start to see all of that on the platform. One thing that always baffled me is in some ways I think Spotify probably enjoyed an accidental advantage in being outside the US in that your major US competitors haven't really gone global. Pandora certainly hasn't i suppose tidal did um do you think this is a rare case where you know normally the greatest place you can start any tech firm is always you know the valley somewhere and yet strangely your origins in sweden might have actually helped you out there
3: yeah I think that's a that's a great question actually and 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 actually you know not just within within our space i think um tech businesses in europe you know there there is a, res- a bit of a resurgence i'd say or a an emergence actually you know particularly over the space of the last you know couple of years or so now from from our perspective from a spotify perspective i think you know, you know the mature markets are sweden and uk and so you know um for if we, if you think about you know some of the, some of those organizations that you just sort of mentioned you know their homeland is the US and then they and then you're right you know then they would sort of venture out and i think for us we're you know starting from here um europe and EMEA being you know our sort of first markets that we went into and then us we went into you know a little later and you know clearly then had the explosion in in that space so you know i I think it it does help us i think you know our our footprint now globally 79 was 79 countries but you've probably seen last week we've just now opened up in in russia and the balkans and and so on and so forth so that you know that that will continue for sure uh, we, you know, we're terribly excited about that. But I think, I think, you know, it's, you know, from from my perspective, particularly with the role that I do, our origin being in Sweden and so on helps me, right, because it really does help me in terms of, you know, some of the decision making, the the ads business is based out of New York or headquartered out of New York and so on. So being in the UK for us, that that's actually quite important, because it just means that we um, have better agility than than perhaps maybe Uh, Some others that do, that are in that sort of space.
1: I must say I'm amazed by the high proportion of your users who are subscribers. That surprised me when I read that sentence out, because I would have assumed that, you know, there were, uh, you know, two or three people or four or five people who listened to the ad funded version for every paid subscriber. Um, So simply by, if you think about it, you know, the natural pattern you'd expect. And yet the subscriber volume seems really high. Yeah, look, Uh, maybe maybe you don't. I mean, maybe to you it's obvious. I I mean, I must admit, I'm a subscriber, which in some ways (laughs) is a pity because I don't get to hear the ads.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and that's and, and you should try it out, Rory, right? Because I, I think the ads are, are pretty incredible,
3: and and obviously with you know the role I do, it is the it is the advertising platform, the free platform, which you know clearly does govern what we can do and what we can do with brands and so on. Um, although although podcasts actually is is one where brands can be both on the premium and the free platform, and I can I can talk a little to that if you, if you want me to a little later. But you know, if if we think about our business model, you know, and and I think that's where I'd like to sort of hone in on here. You know, the subscription business. Um, is 90% of our revenue and, and the ad, ad side of our business is 10%. So clearly a hugely important part of our business for investors, for you know, for, for, for everyone across the business. But what we have is um, a, a pretty strong and unique business model, in so much that you know many of our fans that become subscribers did start in the free. Uh, platform in the advertising platform. And close to 70, 75% of all of those that are in premium came from came from the free platform. And what what why that's important is because, you know, one fishes from the pool of the other. And so for a subscription business to have a, I won't say ready made, but to have a pool that is there that we can, you know, we can transition fans from one to the other is really important to our business model. Now, um, what's been critical for us is that, that that free platform and the advertising platform maintains a healthy um, uh, scale. It maintains, you know, a, a, a level of attraction, which is really important to new fans and for those fans that stay in the in the ad platform. I I have my uh, premium account that I get as a Spotify employee, but I'm in free all the time. Right? I need to hear those ads, Rory. It's really it's really imp- hear and see those ads. It's really important to me. So you know that business model for us is is really critical and then therefore having a healthy number on both sides um, becomes crucial for our, our our overarching business model but then you know for me in terms of my organization in terms of the advertising side you know having that healthy number clearly on the advertising platform means we can do more with brands that's that's critical to
1: us it's really great because i hope in in, in the same way that i think you can be instrumental to new music acts And you can actually seed new music acts with, you know, uh, an interesting audience. I always remember the phrase, I think it's um, the comedian uh, uh, Stuart um, Lee. He makes the point that as a comedian, to survive, what you really need is you need, I think his phrase is, if you've got 10,000 people who will give you £5 a year, you're now in business. You know, Now, it's not great, it's not lucrative, but you survive. And then if you get lucky on top of that, then you might take off. But the first thing you've got to do is survive long enough to have the chance of getting lucky. And I think what you do is you provide a, you know, funding for much smaller acts uh, to achieve that kind of breakthrough. So, I mean, you undoubtedly broaden the whole remit of, of the music industry. I hope you're also doing the same, in a sense, for audio advertising. Because, I'm you know, 30 years in advertising, one of the things I always noticed is that radio advertising kind of always works Okay, out <laughs> of gross generalisation, by God's. But basically, it's really effective. There's something Marshall mcluhan me about audio advertising, about audio conversations, which have a kind of emotional resonance which text doesn't. And yet I always noticed about radio, it's the first thing to get killed when the budget's cut because it requires a separate creative execution and you go no i mean in a sense no one ever got fired for not doing radio you know if you didn't have digital or if you didn't use tv you know you would need a really strong case to defend yourself whereas not having radio was always kind of just you know ignored and i hope too that one of the things you'll do is prevent that happening because i think the audio identity of brands is particularly important
3: very much so Rory and and you know look i think the first thing i'll say is quite an obvious thing that you'd expect me to say as well you know the the way we're sort of seeing audio and the innovation in audio is, is massively exciting actually and in, in, in the journey that we're we we will go on over the space of the next decade or so we're seeing a lot of similarities right now and and we you know we do talk to our to brands about this about the journey that we've started with with digital audio being very similar to the last decade or so journey that's um, digital video has been on so if we think about if we go back 10 years or so we think about digital video and you know the sort of quick acceleration uh over the space over that period around you know uh, measurability accountability scale all the various types of commercial models that were within that and, and so on and so forth and then see where digital video is at right now you know that instills a lot of excitement in me because we're seeing similar signs when it comes to you know particularly around uh, addressability um around you know measurability around you know um scale and so on and so forth so if we are to go on that same journey i, I I'm, I'm sure you know I'd, I, well i'm going to be delighted about that but i'm sure you know many brand marketeers out there now your point there rory around you know um radio um get yeah absolutely getting scrubbed off i think one of the things that has been brilliant to see particularly over the space of the last year or so is brands really wanting to sort of you know what is my sonic identity what is my sonic brand and coming to us you know and really sort of working with us and and getting you know the sort of insights that we that we have and the streaming intelligence that we have which can really help them to formulate something that becomes really powerful and you know one thing we do say to brands that are on our platform is look don't run your radio ads on our platform because you know think think of the environment that firstly we know you know these fans are in um, so, you know, think, think, therefore, about that messaging, think about, you know, whether it's frequency, think about, you know, all of, all of those things that you expect within, you know, that a digital marketer expects, actually, you know, in terms of the, the normal sort of activities that they would do, bringing that into, you know, into the audio space. So I'm quite an excitable chap, Rory, but, um, you yeah, know, this one is one that's definitely keeping me uh, you know excited.
1: I'm, I'm really pleased about this. I think, I think, by the way, there is an interesting link. Um, between Silent Pool and Spotify, which is probably both the craft and artisan gin revolution, and, of course, music streaming, were met with general terror by the incumbents. I mean, the music industry was insanely resistant, really to a point where it probably spent five years in denial. It's a bit like that Kubler-Ross model, isn't it? Of, you know, the, the what is it? The five stages of grief. And the incumbent music industry basically regarded streaming as impossible because it had, had this cushy business selling physical items for years. And in a weird way, I think, and in the same way, you know, I can imagine if you're in Diageo that uh, your reaction to, um, uh, you know, the, the artisan gin thing was slight bafflement and reluctance. I'd always argue that actually most companies, because they're so addicted to an existing business model, generally view change and enforce change with more fear uh, than is appropriate. And we're seeing the same thing, if you like. I spend quite a lot of time speaking at conferences, and the whole conferences and events industry must be absolutely terrified by um, COVID, in the sense that you have this period where it's enforced digitization in this case. And I always remember saying to people like Diageo and people like uh, Suntory, that actually this is something to welcome because um, ultimately you will end up with a smaller market share, but the market in which you operate will end up much bigger. You know, you'd much rather be a a big leading gin brand like Gordon's than a leading sherry brand. I mean, what's the use of 60% market share in a moribund category, really? And so I think there is this interesting thing, which is that, um, uh, you know, those really big disruptive effects um, generally create probably this strange three or four year period of denial in large organisations. And there's nothing, you, to be honest, there's nothing you can do about them, I think. I mean, I always said, look, I I remember saying to someone in the music industry, look most of the reason people are pirating things is not because they're necessarily trying to get them for free, but because you're mad. And I said, look, it's as if, you know, it's as if you could teleport groceries into the home and Tesco was still demanding that you drove to a shop. The reaction of the music industry to streaming was essentially kind of crazy, I think, for about five years in that, you know, it was perfectly evident to anybody that here was a better form of delivery and yet they were there, more or less insisting, uh, you know, that you stuck with the, uh, the the CD model in an age where it had become increasingly absurd. And I suppose the iPod, fin- you know, finally killed that off pretty much for good. But um, it's interesting to me when you, when I look at things. I mean that. Video conferencing, I've I, I been, mean, by the way, very interested. Obviously, I hope the people in Silent Pool aren't working remotely because I'm conscious that high-quality gin does require physical presence. We're a very
2: analogue business.
1: It's a very analogue business, very analog business <laughs> isn't it? Um, I was going to say. But um, I'd be interested to no, know actually Spotify's policy on this because I know we've seen some interesting announcements from Twitter and so forth that they're effectively saying their staff can work remotely in perpetuity now going forward. And yet the strange thing was, which always baffled me, is it took a kind of pandemic. It wasn't actually, when you think about it, it wasn't an enormous leap of the imagination to realize that video technology, which, by the way, I think is, I think one of the things we get wrong is that video conferencing technology is as much important because of the audio quality as it is because of the video. That actually, I had a friend actually the other day who confessed to me that she didn't use headphones or a headset. And when she had a Zoom call, she effectively shouted at her computer like a mad person. And then the sound came back through the speaker. And I was so pained by this. I actually sent her a pair of headphones. (laughs) I couldn't couldn't face the thought. But actually, that immersive, high-quality audio compared to the very stripped-down audio of the phone call is, I think, as much a part of this. Um, discovery as the video itself are you in Spotify are you adopting any interesting new working patterns
3: yeah so look I, I think you know clearly uh well being in so many markets we you know we, we're adhering and have adhered from the the onset with clearly government guidance and, and so on and so forth but we did we did start working from home about a week or two after Jack had made the announcement with Twitter regarding, you know, uh, all their employees, so so we've now been at home for quite some time, and you know, I would say, I would say, with you know our sort of governing policy and being a Swedish company as well, we are absolutely thinking about clearly, you know, the, the safety and health of every individual, and so you know what what we don't want to do is put an undue Pressure upon individuals to say um, to our employees that you know this is the time you have to come back into an office. So we've lifted we've lifted that sort of level of you know expectation. And then in each market, what we're what we're doing there is we're we're you know clearly listening to government guidance and we'll you know we'll we'll work alongside that. I think from from my perspective, running the sales team, I think clearly what's important to us is. You know, how we work with clients, and you know, Rory, you sort of touched on video conferencing, and you know, the art of using the old telephone and mobile is back. I would say as well. So you know, we've we've been able to obviously adjust um, to to the ways that our clients will operate, to how the agencies, how you operate as Ogilvy, and, and so on and so forth, and that becomes really important. But really, governing up at the top of that is you know, we we, we don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable in in any sort of instruction, if that makes sense. You know, in terms of uh, the Office environment. But, but one, one thing that, you know, and this is my, my view here is is culture and, and how to sort of maintain the right sort of culture that you want in your organisation. And I think, you know, what I personally do miss is being able to walk on the floor and knowing where our culture is at, if that makes sense, you know, knowing and understanding, okay, we, we've got potential uh, issues over here, or we need to help, you know, etc, etc. And those, those things are clearly, you know, you don't get you know through a video call you, you don't get to have that sort of chat with an individual and you know a little bit of coaching that you might need to quickly give or or vice versa as well you know hearing feedback from folk in your team so you know from a personal perspective i i do i
0: millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most
3: people are the easy button right
1: I do miss that. I think what is so interesting about this enforced experiment, and the same applies to any other kind of disruption, I think, is that it's worth remembering when your market's disrupted that the problems are more salient than the opportunities. I always argue that a little bit. I I voted Remain, just in case, you know, I don't want to lose my job or anything. But I voted Remain, but I always had a degree of sympathy with levers on on the grounds that everybody was there going, but look what will happen to this very specific thing which we know about. And I always argued, yeah, this is a slightly unfair comparison because, you know, spotting economic opportunities is always going to be much more of an inexact science than um, quantifying known costs. And one of the things I've noticed about the COVID experience is that actually a large part of the benefit, I think, of working remotely comes from the reduction in email, which I, I've always thought is a kind of crap form of communication, not least because it tends to make things very slow. And the the, the story I always tell is, we, I think we can also honestly say we've all done this, okay, which is it's kind of late Friday afternoon and you're looking forward to, you know, lolling in front of Netflix or indeed listening to Spotify and then this request comes in could you write you know 500 words on so and so so and so and to be honest you probably do it right then but you're a bit knackered so you go oh shit you know I really don't want to do this now what can I do and you read the email again and you look for a loophole you go oh they haven't asked they haven't specified when they need it brilliant. And so you tap reply and you go, that's really great. I'd love to help with this. When do you need it by? And you've bought yourself 48 hours. You know. Now, if you multiply that, which I think happens with email a lot, what it means is that decisions and actions, which you know would have taken you know, maybe half an hour and happened immediately, get protracted over five days. And if you think of that effect on overall decision-making, Uh, the speed of decision making, which is in many cases as important as the quality of decision making. Um, I think it really is disastrous. And I noticed that over the last five weeks, I've probably got down to inbox zero every second day. Whereas previously, it it happened about once every six months, you know, I had to be ill, really, to clear my inbox. And um, so there, I think what's interesting about this is we've noticed things, uh, undoubtedly, no one would have I mean even total nutters like me who are great remote working advocates we never would have proposed it five days a week every week we just thought the ratio was wrong and one of the things I think you notice in some ways is that now we're talking to people more and emailing them less in some ways that kind of social and cultural component has got better weirdly would you agree with this
3: yes and no I'd say because I think what's um, taken its place is the Zoom marathons and, uh, and, and back-to-back voice calls and, and video calls, rather. And, and that, that has been a challenge. So, you know, I, I think the early part of when we went into lockdown, you know, I was talking to a lot of folk in the team and peers across the industry and so on who were absolutely knackered by the end of the day because yeah. they'd had back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. And I think, you know, the office environment or, or even previously working from home, you could step away. Right? You, you could step away and so on. And that, that sort of disappears. So I would say that's something that we've, you know, we we like most organisations have tried to sort of figure out, OK, you know, what is necessary? So I think your point is absolutely right in terms of the necessity of the communication has probably been honed quite a bit, right? In terms of, you know, what do you need? How do you need it? You know, and, and so on and so forth. And and that, that I think is, you know, it's been great to see that evolution, I say, over the space of the last month or two. Uh, or a couple of months, actually, around what form of communication do you need to use in order to get you the result that you need? I think that has become much more honed. Is gin considered an essential good?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you.
2: One of our (laughs) our big breaks was the government declared um, booze shops uh, could open from day one um, and that alcohol was an essential good. But we did furlough... A number of staff I mean we've got people working from home locally one of the things we plugged into at the start of the project was there's a whole population of basically mums so you've got ladies that had good careers decided to have kids sort of went offline for three or four years then the kids go to school and they're sitting there and they you know they they can work between nine and three we employ a lot of those ladies and as long as you can roll with it a bit the fact that they have kids that get sick or they, they've got to do other stuff or holiday cover is is a bit problematic. You've got a population of very bright people who can contribute a lot. And actually lockdowns worked for them. The fact that they the kids aren't at school, but they can work from home has been absolutely fine.
1: I mean by the way, I mean I find this really, really interesting. I mean it can be tough obviously if you have very young children or if you've got a mad flatmate or indeed if you live alone. It can, you know it, it can be extreme. But one of the things I've noticed is that employers have been a bit clueless, in a sense, have missed this opportunity because the standard assumption is you pay people for their time. That's how capitalism works, you know, that, uh, you know, essentially capital pays labour. And what we've always assumed, which is really a product of the kind of 19th century, is that the time in which you you buy from people uh, uh, is both specific as to when and specific as to where. And once you realize that there are three things, there's free time, there's leisure, but there's also free when and free where. And I had a PA for a long time who was a single parent. And what we did is we did a perfectly good value exchange. We just said, look, OK, to be honest, I'd rather you were taking your son to school in the morning than on the tube. Because if you're taking your son to school, I can reach you on the phone and go, I'm at the off clients offices and I can't remember who I'm supposed to be asking for. Okay, we all had that, I think. Okay. you suddenly turn up at reception and you go, oh shit, I don't know who I'm supposed to be asking for here. I'd much rather you're taking your son to school and therefore above ground than travelling into work. I used to post bits of admin, like expenses to her home, because she said the best time to do that is when my son's asleep. Because you know, uh, you know, if you know, if I have to do that in the office at four o'clock, it means I can't pick up my son. Or I, I'd rather spend quality time with my son when he's awake, and then get on with a bit of work at ten o'clock in the evening. And once you give employees free when and free where to a degree you actually discover a much better value exchange, I think, between the two. And that particular group, I'd also include, by the way, uh, retirees in it. Because how many people retire not because they want to stop work, but because they want to stop commuting?
2: We've had some very powerful retirees. We had an events programme where we go out to 350 events a year, everything from a local farmer's market to events in people's offices. And we ended up putting an ad out and we've got an active sort of 65-year-old. He was the ex-marketing director for Ray-Ban Europe, who'd just been bought by Luxottica. L-Tips had cashed out. And we got this guy on whatever it was per hour. But we had a world-class marketeer running a local events program. And he was fantastic. But it kept him active. He was out and about. It's exactly what he wanted to do. Uh, he could measure what he'd done in a day. Uh, and he loved it. And he could get home relatively easy hours.
1: Because my father in his late 70s, early 80s, discovered selling books on Amazon. Now, you know, there's no way nor would I expect anybody in their 80s to kind of get up at seven in the morning and get onto a crowded train. But doing nothing, I mean, the whole sort of weird kind of bifurcated thing between you work, you retire, is probably unhealthy in fact, isn't it?
2: It's supposed to be the most dangerous six months of your life, immediately after you retire. It used to be after you were born. And now it's the six months after you retire.
1: Six months after you retire. It yeah. used to be, I won't name the client, but we had one very large multinational client where you know, it was almost a staple, which is people would retire and sort of you know, nine months later keel over.
2: Yeah. If you decelerate or stop dead, that's, that's the risk. You've got to keep it all moving.
1: You're absolutely right from, you know,
3: from an employer perspective, but I think from an employee perspective, yeah, of course, you know, we, we've got swathes of our organisation who, you know, working from home, this has been great. And, and they've, they've really sort of valued that. And, and it's sort of, you know, it's something that they will no doubt want to continue. And so on. we also have huge swathes of folk who are desperate desperate to get back into an office and you know to to get back into the culture and to get back into you know working with or being with colleagues actually so you know there's a there's a real mixture and I think as an employer it's it's on us to you know to see how we really support everyone in, where, in wherever they're at you know and, and and I wouldn't I wouldn't put the you know if you're a parent and you live outside the M25, therefore you love working from home. I won't. I won't say that at all either. There's a real mixture there as well. So I think you know it's it's very much down to the individual and and so on. So
1: we've got to think about that. No, I, actually, uh, there's a wonderful meme. I, I, I Someone only told me yesterday, but apparently went viral a few weeks ago, which was, uh, "Introverts, be kind to extroverts. They don't know how this works." <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> I thought that was rather a nice observation. Now, you know, the traditional office is probably extrovert weighted, but this is of course extremely introvert weighted. Yeah. And um yeah, so, even,
3: I mean even even on that, Rory, I I've got I've got I've got introverts in the team who re, you know are, are, are now you know, absolutely the first couple of months amazing, best thing ever. Yeah, you know, um, but, but now, you know, I, th- I think that human interaction piece, whether you're introvert or extrovert, is, is you know, that's what makes us human.
1: Right? I mean, an interesting thing would be I mean, I've often argued in working patterns that we probably need rules that what we need to do is partition the working week a bit so that, you know, there are there are days devoted to, you know, more solitary activity. And there are days which are social. And I also think we need to partition the office in that in the future, the office is providing two almost opposite functions which is it's social space for people who want to escape loneliness, but also for people who are in noisy home environments. It's going to have to be a library space for people who want to escape the the noise and chaos that's home. And so we probably need to rethink our offices because they've been designed for the middle, haven't they? I mean, I think open plan is a kind of, it's a neither nor, you know, it isn't solitude, it isn't sociability. And there's quite a lot of evidence, by the way, that shows that, that you move people into an open plan office and the volume of spoken communication goes down and the volume of written communication goes up. All sorts of reasons, lots of privacy, the fact that there's always someone within 10 feet, who hates you talking loudly on the phone. You know, when you add all those things up, it's not a great approach. I think it was done to save money and then they post-rationalised it with narratives around team working, to be honest. Great um, quite an interesting question, Ian. Why do you think it was gin that did this? In other words, it could have happened to other alcoholic drinks. You could have had a kind of sherry explosion or a whiskey explosion. What made it gin?
2: So there, we didn't end up in some weird point in history where everybody went gin crazy. Um, In 2009, HMRC, which is the sectoral regulator, changed the rules. So it used to be minimum still size of two and a half thousand litres, which was big. That meant you had a big building, you had lots of staff, and not many people could do it. And from an HMRC point of view, there were few points of sort of duty fraud. And historically, it came down to a number of big families, Booth's, Gilby's, Gordon's, um, Tanqueray. So they only had to police 10 sites. And then Sip Smiths started arguing, well, hold on, if you are a fit and proper person, which is the, the words they use, why can't we have a still? And some bright spark in HMRC reflected on it and thought, actually, that's not a bad point. Why not? And that brought the barrier to entry down. It brought the cost down. So we started with a 350 litre still. Bought buildings down, capital, labour, everything. And that's what opened the floodgates. And the reason it's gin is we say to people it's like painting with flavours. So we paint a picture. When you put it in your mouth, particularly if you sample it neat at room temperature, our gin, you'll get lots of different layered flavours. And it is, a, it is a palette, so there's a flavour palette in there. The issue with things like vodka is vodka sells itself on being white paint. My vodka's double filtered. Well, ours is triple filtered. Well, ours is quadruple filtered over diamonds. Well, ours is... And it goes on and on and on. You're just trying to describe something that's whiter than the next guy. Whiskey takes three to five years, so it's very difficult ah, to explode that. Interesting. Um, and you can... You know, whiskey's got all sorts of barriers. If you go into a whiskey shop and you don't really know what you're doing, it's a very difficult thing to navigate the age statements. This is smoky. This is this. This is that. With gin, it's a much more open spirit. You drink it. You like it. That's it. There's no snobbery around it. There's nobody's going to say to you, oh, dear, you've drunk the wrong vintage on that one. How unfortunate that you don't know what you're doing. You just drink it and like it, and that's it.
1: And there's possibly the advantage it's, it's more gender-neutral than whiskey, too, isn't it?
2: It is. We're, we're more female-biased. We're about 55% female. But gin takes about 10 days from end to end to make. So it's not a difficult thing to make. It's a difficult thing to make a good gin, but it's not a difficult thing to make a gin. So you can spin it up quite quickly. With whiskey, you end up making three to five years' production then you start selling it, so it's a massive cash hit and a risk that what what you've made at the end of five years you discover to be not very nice. <laughs> when you've got a problem. Um, we don't have to make anything unless we're selling it, so you can you can almost instantly respond to um, demand.
1: So you're the, Zara, you're the Zara of booze, effectively. Yeah,
2: pretty much. Pretty much. It means you can you can plan stock holdings. We don't have to worry about, you know, we can we can fire that. We've got a much bigger still now. Um, we had to rebuild the, the entire distillery in 2017, um, five times the size. So you can do it very fast. That's why gin happened. And it it's, there's more scope in it for innovative players to expand the market, which is what's happened. So you've seen lots of small players, once the barrier to entry was removed, come in and, it's your point about, would Diageo rather have a smaller share of a much bigger market? Answer, yes. So we've converted lots of people from whiskey. You get lots of older guys saying, oh, I never drink gin. No, 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 I'm a whiskey man. And you say to them, right, well, just give this a taste and see what you think. And they are surprised by the complexity of modern gins if they've been bought up on. I don't want to slag off the opposition, but all the old stuff that's been around for years that we brought up on
1: also i suppose when you only had and this is what i always argue to the large players when you only had three major players it was impossible for the drink to enter conversation really wasn't it because you just said well i prefer gordon's i prefer pancarray yeah
2: i mean gordon's and schweck's it's a it's a sort of shorthand yeah and what the bigger guys have been found out on is they don't actually innovate much at all they husband brands. And a brand manager's brief is don't cock it up. You've got it for you've got an eighteen month job. Don't just hand it on in marginally better condition than you got it. But they very, very rarely um innovate, which is why they're buying companies. So they buy companies like ours to buy the brand in. In in of themselves, they're good at marketing and husbanding brands that have been created elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I think I have to say that I mean <laughs> I've got to be very careful here because, of course, Ogilvy's stock in trade is dealing with large, established brand owners. Yeah. But we have to say that, with you know, a few exceptions, Nespresso being an obvious one, um, the failure of large incumbents to really innovate significantly, you know, um, is fairly stark, isn't it? And yeah. um, I, I've always wondered why that is, because logically you'd think they'd have an advantage. And in fact, there's a reluctance, and part of it, I suppose, is that risk aversion you mentioned which is well
2: you've probably got a team rewarded on market share Of course, that's what they get their bonuses paid on why would they want to have a lower market share but a higher value
1: of course of course and i'm this this worries me about all aspects of marketing which is the obsession with quantification is there's a great phrase you know what gets measured gets managed but the corresponding truth to that is what gets mismeasured gets mismanaged And I quite often think, I always notice a very simple thing, if you, I mean, quite often metrics like market share are, I mean, there are a few cases where it's a good idea, you know, in the early stages of the software industry, I always noticed that Microsoft wasn't really interested in profit, it was interested in market share, and of course, in a network good, like word processing software, that makes sense. But it's a terribly self-limiting aim, uh, if you apply it to a conventional sort of static category.
2: Yeah, and you've got teams of people that don't want risk. No. If you if you try and branch out and do something different, that involves risk. And it's easier just to manage market share by incremental little pieces rather than bigger jumps. Because I've
1: always argued I've always argued that there needs to be anybody in charge of any business needs to have two separate parts to their job which have totally different metrics. So, you know, 80% of it is exploit. You know, do what we're already doing and do it well. And use what we know to do it better. But there has to be some part of their budget which is not judged that way. Otherwise, you'll never try anything significantly new. And you certainly won't try anything sort of counterintuitive or unexpected. Not least of all, because if you do something counterintuitive, it's harder to justify your decision making. And therefore, the extent to which you get bollocked if you fail is 10 times greater. And yet, of course, the rewards, if you succeed in doing something counterintuitive, are disproportionately higher.
2: Success has many fathers. Yeah,
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. There's a lovely question someone asked me to ask, which is what responsibility do you think brands have within society for helping shape change, um, be it culturally or via sustainability? And I always think, actually, that marketers often get that wrong because the first place you need... um, a a really strong culture and a really strong mission and purpose is actually internally. Um, That, you know, I I think, you know, we can all have a debate about, you know, what you might call, you know, the power of why and the purpose driven brand. But internally, I think that's pretty much inarguable. Do you both find yourself benefiting from a really strong sense of mission with your own staff? Ian first, shall we say?
2: Um, yeah we did the, at its core this is a creative business so we innovate a lot um we produce a lot of spirits we produce silent pool gin but we produce probably another 20 spirits i mean we recently released a very very high dose cbd gin that's the first one in the uk um that's because we sort of could so we'll run counter to the the sort of perceived wisdom and culturally it's not that we're Complete anarchists, but we'll only do things if we can add value, they're different, they're interesting, and we like them. We say to people, we've never started looking at a new idea with a spreadsheet. We always look at it creatively. You then reverse engineer, can we make any money out of it? But the first hurdle isn't can you make money? It's does it does it enhance the brand for silent pool distillers? Is it what people would want to see? And does it enhance the dialogue we have with people that we're different?
1: Because if you start with a spreadsheet, apart from anything else, you end up in the same place as everybody else.
2: Yeah, or if you started with a margin hurdle, you just said, right, it's got to make this much money. What do you need to believe? Right, it's fallen over on sales. We didn't do that with CBD gin. So most CBD gins have got something like four milligrams of CBD in them. We've got 200. Whoa. So rather than paying sort of token, well, there's but people are jumping on the CBD bandwagon of fractions of a percent and claiming they've got a CBD product. So, we put a lot in there. It's very expensive, but if you're into CBD, you'd look at it and go, yeah, it all stacks up and it blows the doors off. So, only do it if you can really make a difference. And that reflects what we do. We do things differently and in an interesting way. And that's why I think people engage with us. So, that's why the staff are here because they see that as a point of difference. They don't come in and just crank the handle, the same handle every day. They do different stuff. Um, we've got amazing stuff in the pipeline um that's that's where people get off on it we have to make it and then we have to turn it into money but ultimately at its core it's a creative business
1: and the same would the same would be true rack with spotify and particularly i imagine that your own uh, staff presumably they mostly love music which helps because <laughs> you have an automatic pre-existing passion. But they also they also have a similar appetite for innovation, absolutely.
3: I guess. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And and so you know, one one element of your question was around the mission. You know, and our mission is to unlock the potential of human creativity. And and so you know that that's quite grandiose, but it's something that. You know every employee, as they come into our organization, you know it, it resonates in some way. You know whether you're in the ads business, whether you're in the music team, whether you're in the podcast team, whether you're R and D, and so on and so forth. So there's a connection that you have with what we're trying to do every day, and so I think that ensures a we're pointing in the direction that we need to be going in. Um, and then, secondly, we can we can start to you know harbor and 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 create the culture that will help us to move move along. And again, it you know it really sort of comes from those at the top of the business, and 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 then you know there's a responsibility to to every employee. And then, if you think about our products as well, right? So in terms of um, sort of cultural impact and so on, you know, we we are that mirror. We are that mirror to culture. You know, with what's been going on with Black Lives Matter, we you know we've seen that on our platform. We we recognize we have a role to play there. As well, um and the responsibility on that side too. So, you know, it really, it really, as you say, it really does start with our employees, but then goes through the to the products and to the, you know, the the experiences that all our fans have with us. You know, whether that's in music
1: or podcast. And it's very interesting. I, I think in questions of brands getting attached to causes, I'm a little, I'm always a little cautious because um, it, if it's relevant and if it's entirely relevant to what you do, it seems entirely appropriate. The reason I don't like the bandwagoning effect is that the trouble with signaling that you care about something is that sometimes signaling how much you care about something is actually a distraction from solving the problem because if you want to show you care about something you you address the problem very directly you say we are opposed to this bad thing many problems of course are solved obliquely and so I some you know I sometimes wonder in some areas whether the Uh, In environmentalism, for example, sometimes I think the most passionate advocates of uh, environmentalism sometimes adopt uh, positions which are actually probably an obstacle to solving the problem because a large number of environmental problems can be solved actually without hair-shirtedness. You know, a Tesla has a much better performance uh, than practically every, every internal combustion engine car. And I think sometimes by emphasising the level of suffering and sacrifice, which obviously people are keen to do if they want to signal commitment, sometimes what happens is you produce a movement which is great and entirely well intentioned, but it doesn't really scale. I've often, you know, I've often thought that the most passionate vegans and vegetarians, for example, are so militant about tiny details of, you know, um, uh, you know, of, of demonstrating their own purity that if they're not careful, it becomes off-putting to mainstream people who would very readily reduce the amount of meat in their diet. And So you actually what, what's interesting is that those brands like Beyond Meat, which are, it's a, when you think about it, it's a very clever thing to call a, a vegetable-based product Beyond Meat, because nearly everything has been an apology for it's a bit like meat, but not quite as good. And here you have this brand which says, you know, this is meatier than meat itself. And it, it's interesting that it took 10 years for people to break out of that language of self-sacrifice in meat-free food, and um, so you know, I, I'm. But I, but I think internally, I think the argument for purpose is really strong because essentially, it creates focus and it creates automatic kind of cooperation. What well, i was just wondering, your equivalent of CBD gin rack. I noticed you did a recent voice-activated ad with NARS Cosmetics. Now I haven't seen that because my main relationship with NARS cosmetics is stopping my daughter's seeing hands <laughs> for NARS cosmetics, um, as far as I can possibly do that. Um, how did it work? Yeah,
3: yeah, of course, of course. So, so um, there's, there's a couple of elements to this actually, which I think are really interesting to sort of um, to talk about. I think one is, you know, the lockdown, right? So you've got a cosmetics brand here and many you know, brands within that sort of space who uh, are reliant and have been you know, very reliant on, you know, the, the more traditional ways of getting their product to you know to to their audiences and so you had you had a brand here and we worked with story lab uh, and the folk over at densu who um recognized that you know particularly under lockdown they were curious yeah we talked to you you mentioned earlier on about you know thinking of new business models thinking of new ways of route to market and so on and so forth and 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 they and they really sort of stepped up to that and, and recognize that, you know, this is, this was a time where they need, they needed to think slightly differently. Now, um, obviously working with, with the various agencies and so on, what we did there was talk to them about, you know, the, the major insight that we were starting to see, which was Spotify was being listened to on a quite explosive rate, um, more in home than it'd ever done before and more through smart speakers. And so working with actually a third party sampling business, um, what Nars actually created was or we created with them was an audio which ran on smart speakers in the home, whereby a a fan could request a sample, and then and then the logistics would be picked up by uh, the third party, and and the sample would be would be sent directly to them. So you know what what was happening there was you know when when actually we. Had formulated that campaign.
1: Do do not include that in the TN16 postcode. Whatever you do, okay. But it's a wonderful <laughs> idea. <laughs> uh,
3: it was. I've got to tell you this, Rory. It was a there was a phenomenal response to it actually. And and I think you know it, it, when when you sort of play out what we actually did there, there's no you know there's no rocket science. There's you know it's it's, it's just simply a route to market to an audience who uh, were just so you know engaged with when they heard when they heard that ad. I you know, threw their google home or through their alexa so um yeah, it's been a great campaign and, and you know and 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 I'm, I'm like i said right at the onset on that you know i think having that curiosity at brand yeah you know, at brand level to try something different that they hadn't sort of done before and for us it was the first time of doing a voice activated campaign in
1: the uk as well so we were terribly excited about that too i think that's magnificent i think what we've got here is to ostensibly very very different businesses and I think what you've revealed is that you both have actually a very similar philosophy and as a result you've achieved very similar well-deserved success and I think we see that in both of you that you're motivated you know you're not spreadsheet driven you are motivated by some sense of the future and and the role you play in it and I I have to say uh, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you both. Um, so, Ragh Patel from Spotify and Ian McCulloch from Silent Pool Distillers, all it remains for me to say is thank you enormously for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, that's all from this episode of On Brand. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by ALF Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, just visit the website Alfinsight, alfinsight.com. Uh, the series is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us a like. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.